The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Dogen's 300 Koen Shobagenzo, The Hands and Eyes of Great Compassion, the main case. Yunyan asked Dao Wu, how does the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion use so many hands and eyes? Dao Wu said, it's just like a person in the middle of the night reaching back in search of a pillow. Yunyan said, I understand. Dao Wu said, how do you understand it? Yunyan said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Dao Wu said, what you said is roughly all right, but it's only 80%. Yunyan said, senior brother, how do you understand it? Dao Wu said, throughout the body are hands and eyes. Dao Roshi's commentary. If your whole body was an eye, you still wouldn't be able to see it. If your whole body was an ear, you still wouldn't be able to hear it. If your whole body was a mouth, you still wouldn't be able to speak of it. If your whole body was mind, you still wouldn't be able to perceive it. Because the activity of the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion is her whole body and mind itself. It is not limited to any notions or ideas of self or other. Asking the question in the first place is a thousand miles from the truth. Answering only serves to compound the error. Don't you see? Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva has never understood what compassion is. The verse. All over the body, throughout the body, it just can't be rationalized. Deaf, mute, and blind, virtuous arms and penetrating eyes have always been right here. <coughs> so we're concluding an introductory retreat we've been doing all weekend, and it's also our first. We've been closed, not closed, but doing in session the last couple of Sundays. So good to have you all back. And... Um, Beginning our new year, which is a time of reflections and resolutions, I was talking to Hojin Sensei yesterday, and we always notice it at the temple in the city, right after New Year's, the place swells up, lots of New Year's resolutions, and then it kind of, you know. <laughs> it is easy to begin something. It's not so easy to sustain it, and sustain it in a way that it keeps alive, is that what a commitment is, a vow is, is not as to how to establish something, an intention, and then to actually live it, to follow it through. And that is an essential survival skill for the path. So marking the passing of time, one year ends, another begins. Each year that passes, impermanence becomes more and more clear if we're paying attention. As we reflect on things, we might remember or feel the weight of our regrets, our unfulfilled desires, intentions not followed through. As we grow older, we can see how strong our karmic inclinations are and how they can seem to get stronger. The consequences keep returning. So how do we live this life, how does the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion use her many hands and eyes?
Buddhism teaches the eight worldly concerns that we want to find happiness and avoid suffering. We want to achieve some sort of fame or recognition and avoid falling into some kind of insignificance. We want to be praised and recognized and we want to avoid any kind of blame. And we want to gain things. We want to accumulate, have more and not lose. And so in the midst of it all, we're making choices, we're determining our own paths, whether we're conscious of it or not. And so in the midst of samsara, some of us will just carry on as before, keep turning back to those old formulas, those old patterns with renewed energy. We might do that and try very hard not to notice anything at all about it. Some will seek ways to find change, but those ways basically keep them in the same essential pattern. They don't really bring about any substantive change. And some will seek a path, a way in, a way through, a way beyond. And how do we know if a path is true? If we're going to give it our attentional, our wholeheartedness, have faith in it, how do we know that it's worthy of that? It's a very important question. There's a sutra where the Buddha said, was basically asked that question at a time where there were teachers and communities filling the landscape of, of ancient India. And the Buddha said, he said, pay attention to what they say, those teachers. Do they live in accord with their own teachings? Pay attention to the communities that gather around those teachers. Do they seem to live and fulfill those teachings with integrity? And what is the result of that? You know, what's the consequence of those teachings and practices? I came across a teaching by a Dharma teacher recently. He said, Buddhism's special quality is unity, untainted by the two extremes of it, eternalism and nihilism. And this is sort of the, from the very beginning of Buddhism, he was countering or addressing the, the middle way, the middle path as being a way to be free of those two sort of found essential dualities. One, that things last forever. They're endowed with a, a sense of significant, of essence and, and solidity. And the other is that nothing exists at all. And so the Buddha and, and teachers in every generation have both been challenged that Buddhism in some way is carrying those dualities forward and, and making it clear that that is free of those. We can think of eternalism as a kind of more immortality. It's going to last forever. And nihilism is a kind of meaninglessness. So to, to achieve, a, a realize a unity that is, that is not tethered to either, either of those. And so we enter into a path in which we are introduced to a wisdom that in essence can't be taught. Although they're in so many teachings, and we're so fortunate to have received all these teachings since the time of the Buddha. The old analogy of the finger that pointing, is pointing to the moon, the moon is enlightenment, there's a finger pointing, but it's not the moon. That this teaching, this dharma, this wisdom cannot be contained in words and meaning. It can only be directly experienced, and that's why throughout the course of this weekend we've been practicing together taking these teachings and putting them into our bodies and minds, 
while sitting, while walking, while eating, while working. So I thought in this koan, a good way to begin the, the new year is to take up, turn our attention towards the great Bodhisattva of Compassion, Lavakiteshvara. And the thing about the way is that because it is non-dual, if we want to examine compassion and bring it forth within ourselves, well, then we have to encounter a lack of compassion. If we want to realize wisdom, then we have to come, become very intimate and see face-to-face our lack of wisdom, our delusion. If we want to free ourselves of anger and, and open our hearts, then we have to become very intimate with anger and understand it deeply and learn how to be in its presence so that we're not perpetuating but are allowing those fires to cool and ultimately realize that it's not as it appears. And so that sense of, well, I'm here, but I just want to get over there. So what's the shortcut? Right? This is it. This is the shortcut. (laughs) The thing is, you just can't leap. Right? Because even though they are non-dual, and that what we find ourselves stuck in is not separate from from the liberation from that, the path to that, even though ultimately we don't take a step, the path to that is a series of steps. And so here, these two Dharma brothers, these uh, uh, Yunyan and Dao Wu, come down from the lineage of Matsu, the great master Matsu, Chinese master, and to Yaoshan. And so these were both students of Yaoshan. And Yunyan was the teacher of Dongshan, so a very significant teacher in our lineage. So we, we chanted these names this morning. So they're having this dialogue. So Yunyan asks him, how does the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion use so many hands and eyes? And so one of the images of Avalokiteshvara, or Kanon, or Kanzeon, or Kuan Yin, is of this image with innumerable hands and arms. And sometimes you see those hands holding an eye, sometimes you see them holding an implement, all the instruments of compassion, all the things that Avalokiteshvara needs to bring forward to alleviate the suffering of all beings. It's a very powerful image. Our image of Avalokiteshvara here on the Buddha's left is is a posture of royal ease, which I think is one of the most exquisite postures. A foot touching the ground, ready to move forward, to step forward, to perceive the cries of the world and to respond, but but at the same time being completely at ease, unafraid, We chanted this morning that Avalokiteshvara realizes that realizing the mind sees that all beings, all creatures have the same essence, the same nature, are empty of anything fixed, any, any soul, any essence that is permanent, that abides, that is you, that is me, that is fixed, that is determined. And as I said yesterday when we were meeting, that means everything is in a state of change and flux, which means nothing. We are not bound ultimately by anything. Everything is, in a sense, workable. And she awakens the heart. Nothing is forsaken. In realizing that all things have the same essence, there is no boundary. There is no delineation between one and another. Not in reality. We create those boundaries with our mind. And then we use them to create all kinds of trouble. And because there are no boundaries, no one is outside of this. No one could be forsaken. 
Dogen said the bodhisattva of great compassion is Avalokiteshvara, the one who perceives the cries of the world. She's also called the one who has complete freedom in perceiving. She's unafraid. She hears every call. And then Dogen says, what does this bodhisattva do? Echoing Yunyan's question. And Dogen says, this is a question directed to Tao Wu. This question is not the same as that of the bodhisattvas of 10 stages or three classes. So all of these teachings about the path, about the different stages of the bodhisattva, about following the great precepts, about all the practices we do and the stages that we go through and the levels and so on as we make progress, Dogen is saying, this question is not about that. This question brings forth an expression of direct understanding. It brings forth the hands and eyes themselves. And this is very much the nature of, and the purpose of the koan. It's very much sort of the, a kind of signature of the, of the teachings of Zen, very often, is it's not laying out the path. It's not giving you instruction. It's inviting you directly into the heart of the matter. It's an inquiry that opens the gate into the sacred mountain. It peels back the layers of our complacency and of the ways we use our intellect as buffers, you know, to kind of distract ourselves or move away from the heart, right? The center of things. Dogen says, this question brings forth an expression of understanding. It startles the mind. It begs our attention. It invites us in. It demands resolution. Right? Because in that inquiry, there's a power, there's an, there's an energy, there's a force. You know, whenever there's been anything that you wanted to know, you wanted to understand deeply, you know, it kind of takes over. I remember in college when I was studying mathematics, I had a geometry teacher. It was an upper-level course, and he was talking about the process of proving a theorem. And he says, you begin, and it's very intellectual, and you're struggling, you don't understand, and then you work at it, and you work at it, and you start to get absorbed, and you forget to eat, and you forget to take a bath, and you forget to do everything, until finally, and I thought, oh, this dude has done go-ons. <laughs> that power of inquiry, when it's a genuine inquiry, when it's not a casual thing. That's why it said it's like, putting out a fire on your head. You don't think about it. Should I? Shouldn't I? Today? Tomorrow? It's a little inconvenient. I have other things on my list. You know, you don't have those thoughts. <laughs> a thousand hands and eyes. So in studying, in really studying compassion, as it is understood and practiced and experienced in Buddhism, in many ways we have to let go of our ideas of compassion. Being nice, making everybody happy, avoiding conflict. And see how, what is it that constricts our compassion? If every living thing wants to live, wants to have life, and not just to get through it, but to live, to be vibrant, to feel like our lives are meaningful and worthwhile, that we've used this time well, we've done something with our life that, that is not just taking but is giving. If that's basic to humanity, basically within us, what happens to that? How does it get so muddled up? 
How does pain become pleasure? Lies become the truth. Dishonesty become integrity. It's a self. It always comes back. Seeking ego, status, position, power. For me. Right? I mean, just think about it. If I think about any moment, every moment in my life, when I have caused some sort of harm, I was putting myself forward first. My desire, my need, my wants, always. And so we see how it is that, that sense of self, which just is a word, and it needs to be fleshed out, right? We need to see what is that self? How does it appear? What are all the ways it appears? And how in its appearing? Not always. Sometimes it's just an awareness. It's part of what our consciousness does, to have that sense of self, right? It's kind of neutral. But when we attach to it, when we infuse it with identity, when we when it puts itself forward, then we see how the heart constricts, the mind becomes confined, compassion becomes harder and harder. The greater the self-concern we have, the less space there is for others. It's just kind of a, it's almost like a spatial thing, right? I've only got so much space. And when that's all given to me, sorry, no room at the end. And selflessness is not disregarding this person. That's very important to understand. There's so many teachings that talk about putting others before ourselves. And I, I just think of it as that the teachings understand that we start from putting ourselves first. You know, we, we start with always having some regard for ourselves. And so within that, let's sort of clean that or, or simplify or make that clear. So that self-regard that we have is actually helpful, useful, skillful. That's why bodhicitta is so important. Bodhicitta is the great aspiration to alleviate the suffering of self and other, you. When your well-being is well, when you are joyful, when your mind is clear, when your heart is open, who benefits from that? Well, you do, for sure. But we do. We benefit. The we being anybody that you come into contact with. And of course, the opposite is obvious. And so that understanding that, I mean, that's why we begin by turning our attention in. We have to examine this mind, take responsibility for the karma that this body and mind have created. Go deeply into these attachments, these false views that occupy this person. So how does this bodhisattva compassion use so many hands and eyes? Dawu said, it's like a person in the middle of the night, in the dark of night, reaching back in search of a pillow. A beautiful, simple image, familiar to all of us. The footnote to that says, miraculous activity is not to be taken lightly. Miraculous activity is not to be taken lightly. And this miraculous activity that Dawu is expressing belongs to everybody. But without practice, it's, it's very difficult to see it, to realize it, to live it. And that miraculous activity is simple and natural. It's uncontrived. It's not something you can force. It isn't happening in the middle of the night. 
in the middle of the darkness where no one is seen and no one is seen. It's free of attachment, right? When you reach back for that pillow, when Avalokiteshvara reached back for that pillow, no one is there to offer recognition. The person reaching back is not waiting for applause. It's free of all of that. It's free of the idea of someone reaching back for something to accomplish some means, some end. That's why it is a miracle that takes place in the middle of the night. Dogen says, using these hands and eyes is like reaching back for the pillow at night. Study the use of the hands and eyes in this way. He's inviting us in to that very moment. Investigate a nighttime, which is thought of in the daytime. Investigate this very action. And so again, Dogen is not giving, or Dao is not giving us instruction. He's not explaining how compassion works. He's presenting it in a live way from the deepest place. And so Dogen is inviting us into that place. So he says, investigate that very moment in the bright light of day, in the midst of activity. He says, and a night, examine this nighttime experience in the nighttime. Examine it in the middle of the night. And then investigate this nighttime that is neither day nor night beyond thinking and non-thinking. So he's presenting us with these different aspects of one thing. The relative aspect, how do we practice compassion? He's presenting us with the fundamental basis of that compassion, which is that it's empty of giver and receiver and consequence. And he's presenting us with how that is unified. Avalokiteshvara does not know herself, is not someone being compassionate, is not acting upon another. Dogen says, while all this is true, still there's no way to escape it. (laughs) Still it's useful to speak of her, many virtues, many qualities. And he says, is this so-called someone, reaching back for a pillow in the night, is this merely someone? Or is it an ordinary person, yet not ordinary? If you understand someone as an ordinary person in the Buddha way, and do not take it as merely someone, then there is something to study about reaching back for the pillow. We're all just ordinary people, human beings, living a human life. That's who the Buddha taught for. He taught for us. All the teachers coming down through the ages have taught for human beings. Why? Because we're the ones who need it, right? And we're the ones who create our delusion and our confusion, and we're the ones who can liberate ourselves from it. Other beings either don't need to do this or they do it in their own way. And so how does that ordinary person perform a miraculous activity? where he says, don't merely be someone. Then you have something to study. If we think that we are not ordinary, then we're pursuing some sort of spiritually materialistic idea of sainthood or some such thing. And Buddhism has no interest in that. 
if we think of ourselves as just an ordinary person, a mere someone, and that's all there is to it, then we have no capacity. Enlightenment is for somebody else, not me. What Dogen is describing, you are this way, I am this way, everyone is this way. I was, came across, I was going through some papers, and I came across this old interview of the Dalai Lama. It must have been many years ago. It's not dated, but you know, remember years ago when he was really becoming, he was in the press a lot, he was on the cover of magazines, he was sort of coming into sort of mainstream media, and he was being interviewed. And somebody asked him about his fame and all the aura of fame that was surrounding him and how he was attracting politicians and singers, writers and actors from the West who were visiting him and supporting him and praising him. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, this is just a passing thing. He didn't sound particularly interested. He said, even the sympathy for the Tibetan people is a fashion and temporary. It's something that's present in the moment, but it will pass because all things do. He said, but, you know, at the same time, Buddhism is being taught and it's coming into the awareness of more people, and that might help. He had no particular interest in his fame, his recognition, what he had gained, not only because that was not his vows and what his life was about, but because he understands that there is no one to hang all that on. It made me think of all the times when somebody does something that we hear about in the news that is saving a life at their own, putting their own life at risk, and how that happens all the time. In fact, I heard about, just remembered, I remember reading about uh, an organization or somebody who was actually collecting stories, and they were, I remember, it wasn't, it was, I don't know if they were offering grants or something, but somewhat there was, some, what it was, somebody was kind of noticing and taking note and chronicling, and, and, but there had to be some level of heroism in order to sort of make it into the whatever it was. I don't remember what it was. But what was interesting was that in doing this and having done this for a while, they realized there are so many events where people do that that they had to raise the, the limit, right? They had to raise the bar. But I was thinking about how when people do that and then the news rushes in and the question is, what is it like to be a hero, right? What were you thinking? And it's like in that moment, very often looking at the person, I feel like what I'm seeing is, is like, no. Like, like, what are you doing? That isn't what happened. That isn't who I am. I've never seen an account where the person says, yeah, oh man, I'm a hero, yeah. <laughs> feels good. I'm glad you recognize it finally. <laughs> and it's that moment, right? And these are not practitioners, I'm presuming for the most part. They're just people, ordinary people, but not merely someone who in that moment, because of the moment, in a sense was brought forth, brought out, that that compassion, that selflessness manifested because there was no time, there was no space, there was no need. It would only encumber and cause hesitation or doubt. It's in us. And so Yunyan says, I understand this person reaching back for a pillow 
in the middle of the night. And Dawu says, how do you understand it? Yunnan said, all over the body are hands and eyes. Dogen says, even if the body and the hands and the eyes have the power to cover everything all over, they are not the hands and eyes that would confiscate goods from the marketplace. (laughs) They're not the hands and eyes that get stuff done, that hold on and let go, that can be measured. No views, no practice, no words can exactly express the power of these hands and eyes. That's why these teachers speak in the way they do, so directly. Because ultimately the words will fail. But they're trying to bring us in a little closer. What he's saying is these hands and eyes themselves have no power to commit harm. When they do, they are not the hands and eyes of Avalokiteshvara. When a practitioner who has taken vows to alleviate suffering causes suffering, for themselves or another, in that moment, they're not actually living those vows. Although in a very, in the very next moment, they may return to them, because that's their vow. And th- that is the field in which we practice, and it must be so. It must be so that we can bring forth an aspiration, establish a firm intention, and dedicate ourselves to it, and then fall away from it. Why else, if, if, if that, why else make the intention? Why else establish the vow? But because we need it for those moments where we might fall away, and then we can return. And so in that way, the practice is never at any distance. It is never, ever not possible to practice, to live in accordance with our vows, to fall away from them, and to return to them. Right? You never use that up. Right? It's not like cat gets nine lives. How many times can you fall away? But of course, if we just repeatedly fall away, I hurt you, I'm sorry, I hurt you, I'm sorry, I hurt you, I'm sorry. That doesn't work, right? That no longer is taking responsibility. It's no longer sincere and will no longer be trusted, right? In other words, we have to actually be doing this. When an enlightened being causes suffering for another, they are not living their enlightenment in that moment. Although in the next moment they can remember, return, once again enter into that, because it's never been anywhere else, and then take responsibility. These hands and eyes do not come and go. It's not like we have compassion within us in one moment, and then it's gone in the next moment. Where would it go? That's why the image of the sun or the moon that's veiled with clouds, they can obscure or even hide it all together. But even like this week, as this moon was reaching its full radiance, even on the nights that were completely cloudy, I went out and I looked out on my way over in the morning or at night, completely cloudy. But then as I began walking, I realized I didn't need to turn on my flashlight that the radiance was so strong that even through the clouds, it was still passing through. And we're like that, too. And Avalokiteshvara sees that, that even when the clouds that have been put in front of us or that we create for ourselves are so 
strong, as though no humanity, no compassion is coming through. Avali Kiteshvara is not fooled by that. She sees there is merely someone, and she sees there's a person who is capable of miraculous activity. Dawu said to Yunyan, well, what you said is pretty, pretty okay, but it's only 80% all over the body, your hands and eyes. Yunyan says, well, senior brother, how do you understand it? Dawu says, throughout the body, our hands and eyes. Are those the same? Are they different? If they're the same, then why did Dawu say that? If they're different, how are they different? And what is this 80% business? All over the body, what is that leaving out? Throughout the body, what is that leaving out? What is the other 20%? Dogen says, study the true meaning of Dao Wu's words. Even when someone expresses 10 out of 10, if it is without mastery of the way, it is not complete. If it is without mastery of the way. Sometimes teachers are referred to as as masters or meditation masters. And a group of students I was talking to yesterday, I said, if I, if I can get to the end of my life and feel like I have been a decent student of the way, that's good. <laughs> my Zuma Roshi, in his last poem, said, to complete or not complete is of no consequence. Enlightenment upon enlightenment, delusion within delusion is also of no consequence beginning or ending, complete or incomplete, having achieved or not achieved is no consequence. Why? If that's true, why are we here? Because from the beginning, all of us have this great compassion, this great wisdom. It's our nature. We can't get away from it. You know, when we think of turning away, I've turned away. What does that mean? It's like thinking that if I come to the monastery on the mountain, I'm going to get away from all my problems. How did that work out for you guys this weekend? (laughs) Right? Are they just sitting there at home waiting for you? Well, in some ways. (laughs) But if that was true, everything, this should have just been a complete piece of cake, bliss, right? Epiphany after epiphany, right? We realize, no, no. There is no turning away. There's only turning in. And turning away just exacerbates the matter. I came across a teaching about Tuku Ergen, a Dharma master, who said, in the moment of love, in the moment of selfless compassion, the empty essence, our basic nature, dawns nakedly, is present. Then he said, devotion and compassion are both love. And what is devotion in a path that is not centered around a deity or God? It's defined as a profound religious emotion, a sense of awe, reverence. Devotion is to consecrate a vow, it's to be loyal. What is all over the body or hands and eyes? Is that an act of devotion? Can we be manifest in devotion without knowing it? Is not knowing it actually the purest form of devotion? Selflessness. To live a heartfelt life and intimate contact. To be in awe. If we don't have moments of being in awe, we should should work with that. 
Go out and stand under the sky at night. Stand at the foot of a mountain. Stand at the edge of a beach. Just stand in front of a tree. Be in the presence of a child. Face your mind. Another master said, our appreciation, our admiration, our faith, our trust in Buddha is what we call devotion. It is genuine. It is natural, uncontrived. It is limitless. Why is it limitless? Because the Buddha's compassion is limitless. Therefore, our devotion is limitless. And here I believe he's talking about, this is Dharma Master Tai Situ, he's talking about the Buddha Shakyamuni, but we could, and we could think of the Buddha, we could think of our teacher, we could think of wisdom, which is limitless and natural and genuine, and that we bring forth our appreciation and admiration for it. We could think of our true nature. This devotion and compassion are already present within our awareness. They're our nature. But this teacher said, but in the beginning, we need to fabricate our feelings of devotion and compassion because natural, unfabricated devotion or uncontrived compassion don't just immediately unfold. They're not just immediately available. But by fabricate, let's not think of that as being fake or unworthy or some lesser. It means to cultivate, to bring forth, to make strong, to bring forth something that we need, right, and to find it within ourselves. It's not a, it's not a diminishment. And so, when we practice the precepts, when we practice living together, when we blend our voice with the sangha, when we show up on time, when we lower the lid of the toilet seat, is that an act of devotion? Bodhidharma said, devotion means reverence and humility. It means revering your true self and humbling your delusions. If you can free your attachments and cultivate right intention, even if nothing seems to change, this is devotion. And I think this is such an uh, exquisite expression of devotion. Reverence, to reverence your basic nature your true nature, and not just yours, but the true nature of everyone. That is what Avalokiteshvara sees. That's why she doesn't turn away from those who are calling, no matter how hard we may make it to be faced. Because she has reverence for everyone's true self. And to humble our delusions, I love that, humble, let them just... Be simple. Let them fall down back to the earth. Blend back into the, become humus. Become the stuff of our liberation. And of course, humility, we can practice it, but you can't contrive it. Contrived humility is not humility. Right? That's why the person who is truly humble doesn't know it. Very often, they might be concentrated on the ways in which they're not humble or their arrogance or their vanity and not see their hum humility because they're humble. And so to revere our true self means we have to have reverence for our delusion. To humble our delusion means to be at peace with it. So to have respect for it, not by enshrining it, not by strengthening it, but not by hating it. Because if we hate our delusion, then we're hating ourselves. 
if we go to war against our attachments, then we're going to war against ourselves. That never works out. So if we want to heal a bruised body by continuing to pummel it, how's that going to work out? And yet in the moment, it can be difficult to free ourselves of that judging mind, that critical mind that seems so righteously criticizing, diminishing. But when you understand that that is a result of past actions, conditions, environment, influences, think we have been trained, in essence, to have that reaction. If you think of it that way, it's less personal. I have been trained, I have been conditioned to respond to this experience with anger or with fear. Then that is an invitation. Why? What is that conditioning? Where does it live within me? How do I release myself from that. Bodhidharma said, Buddha wanted everyone to think of devotion as expressing humility and calming the mind. And so he he invited us to prostrate our bodies, to bow, to show reverence, so that we could let the external express the internal, to harmonize the two. Why? Because in the beginning, it doesn't just appear. In the beginning, that reverence, that devotion, that humility, that compassion isn't just immediately present. Otherwise, we don't necessarily need this. And so we're given practices and forms to and language to begin to invite that in so that we begin to experience that as not something outside of ourselves, but something that we ourselves possess to harmonize essence and form, Bodhidharma says, to, to let the external express the internal. How wonderful is that? And so we bow and let that one action help us to do that. And to do that all over your body, to do that throughout the body, that's the way to bow. When you sit, to sit all over the body, all throughout the body. When you walk, when we eat, to show reverence through the body. And I wanted to bring this out because I thought the New Year is a good time to think in these terms because our time is so sorely in need of reverence, devotion, to be devoted to life, to this earth, to each other, rather than to be devoted to all of those views and instruments that are injuring, harming, diminishing those essential aspects of our life. What are we doing? And so, as you, those of you who have joined us for the weekend, thank you for being here. It was lovely to have you with us. felt like a very sincere and heartfelt gathering. Please take whatever has been helpful to you home with you. Think of it as a fire that you keep stoking. Or as Dogen said, like an infant that you hold in your arms, keep feeding, taking care, tending. The door is always open. (laughs) Your door is always open. You don't have to go anywhere for that. And I hope that this weekend has given you enough to know how to enter that door. 
So I'll end with a poem. Ice in winter, melting rains in springtime, flowing streams in summer, and cloudy skies in autumn, all reveal the mutual affection of being. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.